The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. There is a lot that we need to do as businesses, recognizing that caste diversity is low, recognizing that caste discrimination exists, recognizing that people are excluded from the markets and organizations because of caste, and recognizing that people are excluded from higher education institutions because of caste. The caste system will continue to survive and thrive pretty much like racism until and unless we actually look at caste violence and call for an end to it. It will thrive and survive because it's found a global home. And that's the dangerous thing. In this episode, caste and the corporation in India and abroad. Here to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. More than seven decades ago, a newly independent India used its constitution to outlaw discrimination based on caste. And yet this millennia-old system of social stratification derived from ancient Hindu practices is still very much alive, even well beyond India's borders. In 2021, many Indians at home and in the diaspora remain subject to an implicit hierarchy that influences or constrains their education, work, where they live and even who they marry. But the impact of caste discrimination, particularly for those on the lower rungs of the caste system, is not limited to individuals, families or communities. Business also feels the pernicious effects, including large corporations, where the dynamics of caste differences play out among diverse workforces, from Mumbai all the way to California's Silicon Valley. Joining us to look at caste today and what's being done to push back against the discrimination it gives rise to, are Hari Bapuji, Professor of Strategy and International Business, and anthropologist Dr Dolly Kikon, both from the University of Melbourne. They join us via Zoom. Welcome, Dolly, and welcome, Hari. Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you, Ali, for inviting us onto this podcast. So just how alive and indeed thriving is the caste system in 2021? Hari, as we said, India's constitution bans discrimination on the basis of caste. So what relevance does it have in India today? Although the constitution has banned discrimination, it initiated several measures to improve the lives of the underprivileged or lower caste. The caste system has not really gone away. The effect of caste has not gone away. And in fact, it has increased and also has become global. Like now you can see the effect of caste in the South Asian diaspora around the world. So it becomes an important aspect because it has not only increased, but also has become global now. And Dolly, you speak from deep personal experience, don't you? I do. And I'm speaking from Melbourne, so I would like to acknowledge the Indigenous people of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This is something I think that really connects us in terms of historical violence with settler colonies like Australia, to the former colonies in South Asia. And I belong to the Lothanaga community. So I belong to a scheduled tribe in India. When it comes to the 
caste question, it is completely alive. It is thriving. And like my colleague Hari said, it is abolished in terms of, I think, constitutional rights. We are looking at the right to equality, which is really an integral part of the Indian constitution. But when it comes to everyday lives, it's really thriving and alive. As an anthropologist, I just want to call out Pallavi Gupta's work. She looks at the entire caste hierarchy when it comes to even public space cleaning, like the railway station. If you look at Indian railway stations, you know, in terms of, I think, films, in terms of just the tourist nostalgia about stations, it's very, very visible as a marker of public space. What Pallavi Gupta is doing is actually looking at how the mechanization of cleaning technologies is so tied up with institutional violence and caste structures that the lower caste women, particularly the Dalit cleaners, are not given access to any kind of mechanized technology. So if there's a machine that's cleaning, let's say, shit or garbage in a railway station in India that you see, you look at the caste hierarchies, it'll be really somebody of an upper caste person who will be actually touching on the mechanized machines. So when it comes to perhaps, Ali, the question about caste and how relevant it is, it is that relevant, even as we think about technology advancement, you see caste being tied into that. Dolly, that's such a, a visual and very real experience and I suppose example of the impact of caste. But before we look at more of them, if we could just have a history lesson, Hari, what's the history of the caste system in South Asia? How did this centuries of division actually begin? It's a bit hard to really like give a clear and credible account of how this came up. The recent genetic evidence is giving us some more information and insight into this, but it seems like there are two groups of populations at least that's what the genetic evidence is, uh, is showing. One is the ancestral North Indians, and the other is the ancestral South Indians. At some point in time, I think the caste system has been introduced. So this is one account. The other account is that this is just a normal organization of society in terms of some kind of hierarchy. It is for division of labor and things like that. Over a period of time, it has strengthened and turned into a system that is discriminatory, that puts people at a disadvantage and privilege. So these are multiple accounts in terms of how caste system would have occurred. But I tend to focus more on how it is at the moment and how it is perpetuating and how it is disadvantaging people and how it is creating inequalities that are problematic, not only for societies and individuals, but also for businesses. But Harry, if we do look at the history of it, tell us, for example, about the Manusmitri, this authoritative book on Hindu law that dates back at least a thousand years before Christ. If we look at the Manusmriti, that is one of the texts, and there are arguments that it is not necessarily the authoritative text, but there are references to some kind of system of dividing people into groups across many texts. And in some ways, again, I'm not trying to be an apologist here, but I think the reality is that some kind of division of people into professions, into classes has been natural to many societies. And we would find those in several scriptures. So if we talk about Manusmriti, it is a text which in fact authoritatively and clearly 
categorizes people and prescribes who can do what and a lot of things that we see today in fact we can trace to what has been said in manusmriti like if we look at names it talks about who should have what kind of first name and what kind of last name so having this two part name structure or giving that structure to people and giving occupations to them and prescribing who should marry whom and who can marry how many times and prescribing who gets what kind of punishment for what kind of action who has what kind of rights and responsibilities all of these things have been prescribed in manusmriti it is being contested but we can still see a lot of ways in which some of the existing practices can be traced to the manusmriti and dolly for people who are not familiar with the caste system there are essentially four main categories aren't there and yet there are actually thousands of different subsets of caste aren't there that's right the practice and the project of caste it's to do with this expanding greater experiment right because caste as a practice definitely exists it is institutionalized it is perfectly smoothly running in terms of any kind of structural violence that we see and we have to i feel look at this conversation not only as an indian practice but as a greater india experiment that starts all the way perhaps in the hindutva hindu right imagination starting from afghanistan all the way into indonesia so that's kind of the mapping that goes on there i would like to say that colonization had a big part in propagating the myth of the superior race if you look at colonial administrators like herbert risley's work for instance you can actually look at that beginning from the early part of the 20th century how senses how practices in a way were centralized in this concept of anthropometric method where the measurements of human bodies of the faces of the nasal index were actually becoming a central focus of tracing what race became superior in this conversation which was actually used by the nazis as well how is this relevant in the indian caste system it was very relevant in propagating the indian caste system as something that was superior and that's how we see this myth being propagated about upper caste brahmins having an aryan having a european genetic composition and time and again we have to understand that as these myths are being weaved in the 19th century where colonization british colonization and british colonial administrators played a central role in bringing eugenics actually to collaborate in this building of colonization in the subcontinent for british colonial authorities they saw a perfect match collaborator in the upper caste brahmin community and that's how lower caste in a sense where perceived to have a non european genetic composition so you see that division right there this myth being propagated which actually also became a racial one and at the same time enhanced caste harry do you agree with dolly particularly about the aspect of eugenics about the aspect of eugenics central to the caste system is the idea that people are graded so there are some people who are superior than the others so that goes on and on as you mentioned there are thousands of castes which are occupational categories which are categorized into four broad varnas or four broad categories with brahmins kshatriyas vaishyas and shudras and then there are the 
Dalits are untouchables, and then there are the Adivasis are the indigenous groups. All of these people are supposed to be different, at least the way Manuspriti or the way the caste system categorizes or portrays these people is as if they are different races, which are, you know, some are superior and some are not superior. That's one aspect that we need to keep in mind. And in some sense, there is a similarity to race there, right? That there are some races that are pure, some races that are superior, and some races that are not. And in this particular case, whether we call them as a race or a group or a category or a caste, there are some that are superior and some that are inferior. Where I disagree is that this is not necessarily related to the Hindutva or Hinduism alone. If we look at caste, in some ways, the myth is that caste is relevant only in India and caste is practiced only by Hindus. It is true that we can see some references to caste-like structure in Hindu scriptures or scriptures that are from the subcontinent, but we have evidence to show that caste is practiced by Christians, caste is practiced by Sikhs, caste is practiced by Muslims. So we have a caste system across the religions, and then we have caste system outside of India, right? It's not necessarily what is specific only to India. It's spanned across the Indian subcontinent. So that's the second aspect. The third thing that I'd like to clarify is that colonization has definitely had a strengthening effect on caste. Um, they've definitely enumerated, they've had introduced census. So they had clearly identified castes and caste groups and gave them different privileges as the privileges and customs were existing at that time. So in some sense, colonization has strengthened caste hierarchies. But at the same time, caste and caste hierarchies preceded colonization. Colonization is a couple of hundred years old, whereas caste system is thousands of years old. I think that's something to keep in mind. And finally, we can see some of the racial aspects as visible aspects, right? So if you walk into a room, if there are only white people or black people or brown people, you can say that it's not diverse, but that you cannot say with caste. It is an invisible feature. It's an invisible characteristic. So Hari, you say caste is invisible. How easy is it to know what caste someone belongs to? What are the markers that reveal a person's caste? People can figure out the caste of a person through a number of means. It's a combination of various factors that goes into identifying what the caste of a person is. So the very common way to find out is the last names. So the last name indicates the caste, particularly those of the upper castes. And this again goes back to Manusmriti, where it prescribed that Brahmins should have the first name, which reflects knowledge, and Kshatriya should have a first name which reflects courage and strength, and Vaishyas should have first name which reflects wealth, and Shudras should have a first name which would reflect their servitude and would invoke contempt. So the first and last names clearly would tell what the caste of a person is, particularly in the northern parts of India. The other ways you can find out is the dietary practices. Vegetarianism is common to many upper castes, particularly 
the Brahmins and Vaishyas. So that's the second way that you can find out. The third is the location of the house. Typically, the areas within these villages and towns and cities have been demarcated for various castes. So some localities are known by their caste. You can tell caste by the locality in which a particular person lives. And you can also identify it based on what are the occupations of the parents and grandparents. Because upper caste people had access to education for several generations, you would find them in elite professions, in knowledge professions. Whereas the others are the lower caste would be typically found in lower ranks of the hierarchy and in professions which do not depend on knowledge, they depend on manual labor. Finally, there is a joke that goes around, which is that how do you tell if someone is an upper caste or not, is that they would tell you. In a conversation, they would find a way to express that they are upper caste. So Dolly, you talked a little earlier, I mean, you mentioned the technology and the cleaning systems on the Indian railways, but in practice, what do the restrictions mean for an individual's ability to, I suppose, reach their full potential to make a better future? Because it would seem that caste strips away agency. Ali, even before we invoke agency, which is, I think, quite a powerful term, when we think about caste and caste practices, it's really about this everyday humiliation, right, which is founded on violence. And here we are talking about thousands of years of impunity. And coming back perhaps to the process of colonization as an anthropologist, I say that that's really, really fundamentally important for us to remember that India as a post-colonial country today, in terms of the institutions, are all, majority of them, um, established by the British colonizing authorities. So in that sense, if we look at, for instance, even agency here, let me just give you the everyday life of a prisoner in India. In 2020, Sukanya Shanta did this wonderful study about the prison system and how the caste laws govern even the Indian prison system. For instance, if there's a prisoner who is sent to a prison, the first thing that's done is to be interrogated in terms of the jati, the caste, or in terms of perhaps the subcast categories. And that's how a prisoner in a typical Indian system, in a typical Indian prison, would be shown his or her place. And by that, I mean, even inside a prison system here, a very violent structure, we're talking about where prisoners are assigned duties. So if you are a lower caste or an Adivasi, you'll be meant to clean, do the cleaning jobs of the toilets, uh, perhaps given the broom once again. The broom and cleaning is really a significant part of stripping away of that agency. For the cooking department, the prison manual clearly states that any Brahmin or sufficiently high caste Hindu prisoner is only eligible to do that. But Dolly, in the broader community, does it essentially put a very firm ceiling on upward mobility or can you transcend your caste designation? Very challenging and extremely hard. It's very clear if you go to most urban cities in India, you have... In Hindi, the Safai Karmachari colonies, you know, the people who do the cleaning are really designated to live in a separate suburb. 
the expansion of Indian urbanization on the basis of labor here, which is very, very normalized. For instance, there is an amazing feminist geographer. Her name is Malani Rangaratan, and her work on Bangalore, also known as Bengaluru, is very important. She shows how, even in terms of this illegal constructions, what you call the slums or the ghettos around Indian cities, are basically in a way categorized as suburbs or slums where perhaps Dalits and Adivasis would stay or where, you know, the middle, uh, the upper caste workers would stay. And Malani's work clearly shows how in a city like Bangalore, urban spaces and ecologies are really dictated by caste practices. So if there's a Dalit slum in a city, in an Indian city, the authorities would be much willing to actually criminalize its inhabitants and the settlement as an illegal settlement. Secondly, they would have the impunity to actually evict the settlers and also claim and take away the land for larger development purposes, like perhaps building a big shopping mall or building a five-star hotel. Coming back to the question of agency, we have to see caste and caste practices as something that is really centrally integrated into the neoliberal economy and as well as the market economies that have come up. And we can't take the urban Indian city experiences away from this. And Harry, I know that you've written a position and mobility and non-negotiable under the caste system, and yet we do have affirmative action initiatives in a range of areas in India, don't we? So how do those two things sit together? So there are two things there, Ali. One is that you're looking at economic mobility. Some of the people born in the lower castes can always gain economic mobility to certain extent, but that doesn't change their social position. So their caste remains fixed. They can gain a little bit in terms of class, which is often defined or which is often informed by education and income and occupation. But caste position is very much fixed. Now, affirmative actions, just like the caste has been outlawed or abolished, affirmative actions have been introduced, but that doesn't mean they have been implemented to the extent that they should have been implemented. Are we talking about quotas, Hari? Is that the sort of thing? Quotas for government jobs, quotas for education? Yes, yes. So the quotas for education and quotas for jobs have rarely been implemented in the way that have been designed. So as a result, what you see is that even with the quotas, the lower caste people end up in the lower rungs of the organizations, whereas the upper caste people are in the upper echelons of the organization. And this is across the various professions. If we take the university vice chancellors, they all are upper caste. If we take the top bureaucrats, despite affirmative actions, the quotas, I don't remember seeing any top bureaucrat from lower caste. If you look at the management faculty in the Indian Institutes of Management, which are supposed to implement affirmative action, there are not even 100 management faculty who belong to the lower caste. And it might probably seem as if it's natural because lower caste, so there are not many people there. But we are talking about a billion people. Out of billion people, there are not even 100 people who could become management faculty 
in IAMs after 70 years of quotas. So this is the kind of implementation that we are looking at in the sense that although there is a law, there is a problem with the implementation. But is it just a problem with the implementation of law, Hari, or does it go further than that? We see it, for example, in the debate about gender equality, that when you look at organisations, corporations, for example, you have boards that they're filled with men and it's easier for men to appoint men. Is that part of the issue when it comes to change, that you can have affirmative action, but it is easier to appoint from your own caste? Again, two things. One is that the affirmative action is the bare minimum. So this applies to jobs or entry-level jobs. And in some cases, it was also applied to promotions, but that's always contested. And the affirmative action, the quotas are only for the government service or the public sector organizations. They have not been implemented by the private sector or the corporate jobs. So that's one reason why you wouldn't see much movement or much mobility of lower castes or much presence of lower castes in the the corporate sector. So all the other things that you would see with respect to race and gender and ethnicity-related discrimination and the resultant inequalities with respect to recruitment, with respect to promotion, all of those you would see in the case of caste as well. For example, if you look at the board structures itself, across all the corporate boards in India, 90% of the positions are filled by two castes whose population percentage is less than 10%. And that would be the same for many other professions, whether you take media, media houses, as I mentioned, you know, the faculty positions and things like that. Companies have done very little, particularly the private sector has done very little to improve the caste diversity in organizations. And in this particular study that I was was mentioning, there are only three directors who are from the lower caste. And that is after affirmative action. So three out of like a couple of thousands, I forget the exact numbers. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore, and I'm joined by Professor Hari Bapuji and Dr. Dolly Kikon. We're talking about the lasting impact of India's caste system and how it plays out in organisations. I want to return to that issue of corporations and organisations in a minute. But Dolly, just before we do, how do you see the reasons why the caste system has survived and indeed in many ways thrived? Do you see it very much connected to those who set the narrative? The caste system has thrived and survived and it will continue to survive and thrive pretty much like racism. One of the reasons why I say that until and unless we actually look at solidarity movements and join the civil and political rights movement to look at caste violence and call for an end to it, it will thrive and survive because it's found a global home. 
And that's the dangerous thing. It's found a global home where, in a way, it's tribe that we have seen with the cases that you are citing from the Silicon Valley and also Harry's work on the private sector. We have seen that how capitalism and market economies are spaces where caste and caste practices thrives. That shows us, I think, a couple of things. First, it has to do with power structures. Second, it has to do with labor practices. And third, it has to do with the continued devaluation of labor that market systems and capitalist economies propose and validate. Harry, let's get specifically to organisations, but come at it from a global perspective. Dolly talked about how caste has found a global home. What does that look like in an international context? Dolly mentioned Silicon Valley there. What are we seeing in terms of the impact of caste beyond India's borders? If you look at the impact of caste outside of India or South Asia, it started with the migration um, Let's look at only the recent migration, the economic migrants who have gone to the Western world for better opportunities, whether education or employment. So a number of them, because of their generational wealth and generational access to education, happened to be from the upper caste. Until 2000, most of the people who migrated to the developed West were from the upper caste. So much so that recent surveys find that In the U.S., 90% of the immigrants are from the upper caste. When we say upper caste, we can say that is about 20%. And they have really imprinted or they have really developed a profile of who is a good immigrant or who is a successful immigrant. So someone who is like English speaking and who has had a certain type of education and certain type of networks and who has certain types of cultural practices, whether it is yoga or whether it is vegetarianism. If you look at the Indian population, like the majority of it is not vegetarian, but Indians are often considered as vegetarian. So this has had an effect on the later immigrants, some of whom are from the lower caste and their ability to fit into the organizations and their ability to network and their ability to use those networks for professional advancement. And that is what we are seeing as a struggle now in the Silicon Valley. If we take the example of Cisco, which is currently in the courts, in this particular case, a lower caste individual, particularly a Dalit, whose identity was outed by his upper caste friends. They also happened to be his superiors, but they were from the same institute, the Indian Institute of Technology. So once his identity was outed as a reservation candidate, that's the kind of slur, it invokes a number of stereotypes about one being less meritorious, one being incompetent, and that had an effect on his career growth and his interactions. And when he took it up to the HR department in Cisco, they were unable to deal with it because they could not recognize how caste operates. They could not recognize how caste interactions might be influencing the lives of people who are from the lower caste. And because they also did not have caste as a protected category or a recognized category in their own system of 
diversity and inclusion, they decided not to take action on that. And that is now in the courts. But Harry, indeed, it's in the courts. And in California, the government has used the Civil Rights Act. So to what extent is caste discrimination covered by other anti-discrimination provisions, other legal provisions in various forms of legislation? So if we look at the various forms of legislation, the only one that can probably cover is the discrimination by dissent. But here again, the dissent can be categorized either based on the caste, as we would see the discrimination taking place, or by ethnicity, right? So in which case, everybody belongs to the same ethnicity of South Asian or Indian. The dissent covers to some extent, but it doesn't fully give the measures to deal with it. Hari, you made the point earlier that corporations have done very little to increase caste diversity. So what's the cost-benefit analysis for corporations when it comes to working in caste-based societies? Why have they not done more to increase caste diversity? So we have to see it from two different perspectives. Like one is either India or South Asia, the societies where the caste is predominant. There, the affirmative action did not apply to the private sector. And they did not see a reason to implement it. They thought it would compromise the merit and all of those things. And the movement towards diversity and the benefits of diversity have become known only in the recent past. And the discussion is happening. So to that extent, the private sector has not implemented affirmative action, implemented or tried to improve caste diversity. So when there is no experience for them, that became the same template for the companies from outside, which either operate in India or which have engaged with the Indian workforce. So they decided not to see caste. So by not seeing caste, they have reproduced the caste systems within their own organizations, either through harmless practices in terms of you know what kind of arts and what kinds of cultural practices and what kinds of festivals you promote within organizations or in terms of whom you hire. By not seeing caste, they've identified the ideal profile to be those of certain backgrounds, certain family backgrounds, and those happen to be upper caste, like you know, those who have the right kind of social networks, those whose social networks span multiple influential fields where the organization can benefit from. So if you are hiring a top manager from an upper caste, you can tap into their networks and that is good for the business in some sense. So Harry, what about the risks to a corporation? If their management, if their upper levels see the world from the point of view of only particular castes, not all castes? Clearly that has its own risks and it can create losses for companies. So what the research is showing is that people at the upper echelons are of higher caste. They tend to hire people from similar castes for their top positions. And second, what we're seeing is that they tend to acquire companies where the top managers or the boards are filled with similar caste people. And not only that they acquire companies where they find this caste similarity, but they actually pay higher premium for those kind of companies where they see similar caste directors. So that's one way that you would see that companies would face losses. And third, you would see that companies which have low caste diversity 
which are filled with higher caste people tend to have lower market value than those who have more caste diversity. So these are some of the ways in which it can affect companies. So these are some financial ways or concrete ways. But the other ways that companies can actually face losses because of not having caste diversity is not having access to the ideas that would come from the bottom rungs of the society. In case of countries like India, the bottom rungs of the society happen to be lower caste and also lower socioeconomic status. So that means the poor markets are not being tapped. There are also other implications in terms of one of the ways caste affects people is that it restricts the consumption of people. Like, for example, lower castes and Dalits are not supposed to consume things. Like They're not supposed to flaunt their position. So that can have an effect on the overall market size. So there are different ways in which this can affect the market growth overall. And if we take a step back and look at it from a broader perspective, we know from the experience of various countries that if women are not participating in the economies equally, then they tend to have lesser growth. And similarly, like any group, whether it is lower caste or whether it is people of religious minorities, if they are not participating in the economy or they don't have the full opportunity to participate in the economy and contribute to the economy, then you would see lower growth. So these are all the ways in which we see that we are getting into a cycle where we are suppressing the opportunities for a large population and that obviously means lower growth. So if India wants to become a 5 trillion economy, it cannot do without improving the lives of the lower castes who form about 70 to 80% of the population. And you need to bring them into the economic activity and into the formal economic activity. And only then you can achieve growth. And if that is quantifiable, why is it not sufficient incentive to bring change? As far as caste is concerned, this is just beginning in terms of the conversation. We have seen similar conversations with respect to gender. We have seen similar conversations with respect to race. For example, the quantifiable loss to GDP because of race has been studied by some of the consulting companies, but that has not been done in India. This again is a result of the Western companies looking at Indian market through the lens of the upper caste who see what's happening in India as normal and and not problematic because they don't see some of these aspects. They don't have people in their network who belong to the lower caste who face some of these uh, atrocities. Dolly, how do you see the future of caste in India? And when we look at the situation in organisations and corporations, as Hari just outlined, where do you see the real pressure for change coming from? The challenges actually to do with this kind of diversity and around affirmative action in the Indian caste system is actually grounded on lower caste people, Adivasis and tribals being incompetent and that they lack merit. So in a sense of how caste violence and upper caste sensibilities, upper caste abilities and skills being more superior and being finer and being more trained in a sense to take up this kind of leadership positions is really very, very rampant. 
And so if you're looking at then perhaps to look at the future of diversity, the market economy and the logic is good, but I think we'll fall into this trap again, because if we think about market logic, the market and capitalism, market economies thrive on the basis of differences and inequality. So as an anthropologist, the conversations for me actually rest on equality and on justice. The fact that as human societies, we see each other, one another as equals and as part of human community with empathy and with a sense of care is really central. If we once again bring in the market logic to say, hey, we're going to make more profit if you have more Dalits, let's make more profit if you have a black person, right, at Vogue in New York. I think we are in danger. (laughs) So in a sense, for me, then the basis for the future would be to look at what is merit. At Stanford, for instance, the Department of Engineering and the Heart Sciences are blatantly horrible when it comes to diversity hires. In India as well, when it comes to the science and technology departments and institutions, they are far, far behind when it comes to looking at uh, scientists from the Dalit communities and also looking at uh, tribal and Adivasis. So if we are looking at the future of diversity, we have to really look at the lower caste Dalits and tribals, Adivasis, as people who are absolutely at the center and core of participating in a full citizenship negotiation, dialogue, and experience. And I think that is the core of it. But how do you get there? How do you create a more inclusive society at every level when your decision makers have the benefit of being in the upper castes? This podcast, for instance, the fact that we are talking about this in Australia, in Melbourne, the fact that, Ali, you are here asking some questions, the fact that I'm here as a scheduled tribe all the way from India, working at the University of Melbourne, making sure that I'm here in a podcast talking about this. Action, writing, working with policies, my commitment as a teacher inside a class. And I think this is a movement, this is a cause that will most possibly outlive us. So what do we do as communities, not only as people with Indian citizenship or an Indian passport, but as a global community recognizing that do we have space for these kind of differences based on caste inequalities? Do we have space for racism in this world that we're leaving behind for our children and for the future generation? And I think that is a question not only for people from India, but for all of us together looking at questions of equality and respect for one another. We started the podcast by pointing out this is a system that is thousands of years old. Are you optimistic that in time it will evolve, it will change, it will become more equal? This is tied to the market relations that we're looking at. This is tied to extraction. This is tied not only to people who are protesting against caste systems, but also to the indigenous people's struggles, to the Black Lives Matter, to anti-race movements. This is actually part of really a global community of struggles that we're looking at. So the moment, Ali, for me as an anthropologist and as somebody who is deeply, deeply committed to engaging with this, to resisting it, to talking about it, the moment I see it as something that is different 
from that, say, the indigenous struggles and movements here on extraction in Australia or in North America, I think I lose sight of it already because majority of the labor that's put in, in terms of even extraction sites, the new buildings coming up in Shining India, whose labor goes in there? Lower caste, Dalits, Adivasis, tribals who lose their land. And once again, this is reproduced in different forms. You know, the building of cities, the building of malls. And I think the faster we are in a way to connect with it, the clearer picture that we see. Harry, are you optimistic about change? I'm a little bit more optimistic. As Dolly was mentioning, the fact that we are sitting here in Melbourne and talking about this is a big change. I don't think anybody would have thought about this happening, you know, let's say 10, 20 years ago. So I think there is definitely a movement to think of all of us as equal individuals. And that is where I think we need to see the underlying premises or underlying principles that are dividing us, whether it is on the basis of religion or whether it is on the basis of skin color. The idea is that dividing people into the system and then assigning them various attributes or various skills and occupations. I think this needs to change. And once we understand this as a system, that is when we can create change and we can create conditions for change. And the caste lens or the caste system gives us the tools to do this because caste is multidimensional. And that is the reason why Dolly's points that come from the justice perspective and my points coming from an economic perspective, both are equally valid because caste addresses both. It makes people unequal and it also gives different values to the labor of different people, right? So there are multiple dimensions that we need to attack and there is a lot that we need to do as businesses recognizing that the caste diversity is low, recognizing that caste discrimination exists, recognizing that people are excluded from the markets and organizations because of caste, and recognizing that people are excluded from higher education institutions because of caste and other types of inequality is very important. Through this recognition and through this exchange of ideas, is how we move towards you know more equal society. So I'm a little bit more optimistic because we wouldn't have been able to imagine the kind of progress that we made with respect to whether it is gender equality or racial equality 50 years ago. Like we're in a much different world today than we were a couple of decades ago. So I'm a little bit more optimistic on this. But yes, you know, we do have a lot of work to do on this front. Yes, the challenges are enormous. Harry and Dolly, thank you so much. And before I let you go, if listeners want to hear more about your work and your thoughts on caste and other issues, where can they find you? Harry, are you on social media or or elsewhere? I tweet as Hari Bapuji, uh, my full name, and I'm on LinkedIn. So, you know, people can also connect with me there and see what I write from time to time. Terrific. Dolly, what about you? You can find me and many of my other works, particularly on food and food-based discrimination in India at Dolly Kikon on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. I post my research there. So definitely, you know, connect with me. And yeah, a shout out to all the amazing people out there in the David Justice Movement. Sounds terrific. Both of you, uh, Harry and Dolly, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your insights. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Dolly. Thank you so much. Our guests have been Harry Bapuji, Professor of Strategy and International Business, and anthropologist Dr Dolly Kikon, both of the University of Melbourne. 
Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. And be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the 15th of June 2021. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Calvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.